Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute's Policy Forum, Would Medicare for All Mean Quality for All? I'm Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. And the debate over whether to expand Medicare from covering 66 million elderly and disabled U.S. residents to covering more or all of the 330 million residents of the United States has heretofore focused almost exclusively on cost. Is Medicare more efficient than private insurance? Would Medicare for all reduce overall health spending? The debate has paid very little attention to the effect the Medicare program has had and that Medicare for all or other expansions of Medicare might have on the quality of healthcare. My colleague Jacqueline Pahida and I authored a paper that aims to remedy that oversight. This forum takes its title from the title of that paper, Would Medicare for All Mean Quality for All? How, a public, how Public Option Principles Could Reverse Medicare's Negative Impact on Quality. The paper is available now on the Social Sciences Research Network website. It'll be available in the coming weeks in final form in the Quinnipiac Health Law Journal. And that paper will serve as a springboard for our discussion of Medicare and its impact on healthcare quality. To help us explore this question, we're very pleased to have two guests with us. First is Matthew Fiedler. Matthew is a fellow in econ the Economic Studies Program at the Brookings Institution uh, and at the University of Southern California Brookings Schaefer Initiative for Health Policy. He is a past chief economist at the Council of Economic Advisors. He has a PhD in economics from Harvard University and is author recently of the article, Designing a Public Option that Would Reduce Healthcare provider prices through the USC Brookings Schaefer Center. Matthew, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, our our second guest is David Muelstein. David is the chief is chief research and innovation officer for Health Management Associates. He from Ohio State University. He, he holds such varied degrees as a PhD in health services management and policy, a JD a master's in health administration and some random master's degree in, I don't even know what the other master's degree is, David, you'll have to tell us what that is. He is author also recently of the health affairs article, Medicare Advantage for All, Not So Fast, which he co-authored with Ken Terry. David, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. It was public health, by the way. Public health, so an additional master's degree in public health. All right, so we are, going to uh, be discussing uh, that article uh, as well as the topic of quality in healthcare and the Medicare program. We invite your questions. Uh, we hope you will ask that you ask any questions that come to mind. You can ask them through your favorite social media platform, uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or the Cato webpage if you're watching us there. Just please use the hashtag Cato Health, and then we'll be able to pick up your question and hopefully get it answered. So I will get us started. Uh, I'll get this discussion going. A lot of people find the Medicare program very comforting. It subsidizes healthcare for the elderly and disabled, subsidizes their healthcare very heavily. It covers a broad range of doctors and hospitals. Some think it's been such a success, they want to expand it to cover all 330 million US residents and even to prohibit private insurance, including the Medicare Advantage plans that currently cover more than 40% of Medicare enrollees. But there are problems, not only with Medicare for all, but with the Medicare program as it exists today. 
For example, the benefits of Medicare in terms of improved health are unclear. There was a paper several years ago by uh, economists Amy Finkelstein and Robin McKnight that looked at the first 10 years of Medicare and found no evidence that Medicare saved any lives in its first 10 years of operation. On top of that, there's a large literature that shows Medicare has had a negative impact on healthcare quality. Medicare purchases medical care according to a single one-size-fits-all set of payment rules, which inevitably re rewards some forms of low-quality care and discourages many quality improvements. Uh, to give an example of how Medicare pays more for low-quality care and less for high-quality care, there have been innovations that providers have developed. Providers like Intermountain Healthcare, Duke University, and uh, providers in Bellingham, Washington, who improved the treatment of pneumonia and congestive heart failure and diabetes. These innovations improved patient outcomes, they reduced resource use and healthcare spending. But beca because they these innovations used fewer services, and I, uh, because they use fewer services, especially hospitalizations, and because Medicare pays on a fee-for-service basis or a per-hospital admission basis, Medicare ended up paying these healthcare providers less, and they all had to shutter those programs because improving quality in these ways was not economically viable within the Medicare program. So the Medicare program, in addition to this, also punishes quality in the Medicare Advantage program, where... 40% of seniors get their Medicare benefits through private insurers. And even when Medicare tries to improve quality, its quality improvement programs also, even as quality improvement programs, pay low quality providers more than high quality providers. They award quality bonuses to low quality hospitals and mediocre health plans. And often they have no effect on the underlying quality trends. So sometimes when we hear that these programs have improved quality, what has actually happened is they have uh, they're they're taking credit for the sun rising. I'll give an example of this. There is a uh, this is a chart that the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission put together uh, uh, for measuring risk-adjusted mortality in conditions covered by one of Medicare's quality improvement programs. It shows that uh, that. Indeed, mortality fell for the conditions covered by that program, but they were already falling before that program took effect. And the reductions in mortality were just a continuation of those prior trends. And this was also the case with conditions that were not covered by this quality improvement program. 30-day risk-adjusted mortality was falling for those conditions as well. And so we can't really credit Medicare's quality improvement programs with those quality improvements. Those were taking place uh, uh, prior to Medicare trying to do something uh, to improve quality in these areas. And there's really no evidence that Medicare is improving on what the, the, uh, the, the quality of care that would be delivered in the absence of those programs. Uh, on top of that, Medicare doesn't even care enough about quality to measure it in a meaningful way, something about which the Medicare P Payment Advisory Commission complains year after year without any resolution. So the biggest problem with expanding Medicare, either in whole or in part, is really not how much it would cost. The bigger problem is that it would expand B Medicare's negative influence on the quality of care. Now, fortunately, there is a way to improve quality in Medicare. My co-author Jacqueline Pahida and I argue that applying public option principles to the Medicare program could deliver a lot of the quality improvements that 
researchers believe are are possible and necessary within the program. The, the idea of a public option is you have a government health plan that competes with private insurers on a level playing field. Usually advocates propose that for the under, under 65 population, uh, but applying those principles within Medicare would allow for greater experimentation with quality improvement, uh, allow for greater experimentation with different payment rules, different ways of delivering health care, and different uh, quality improvement initiatives. And Medicare is really a better candidate for uh, the application of these principles than the uh, private market for people under age 65 is. There really already is a public option within the Medicare program. Seniors can choose between the traditional Medicare program or private insurers that participate in the Medicare Advantage plan. You have a population that's already accustomed to making that choice. And Medicare has both the model and the tools in to create the most level playing field possible. The model here I'm talking about here is the Social Security program, and the tools uh, include the risk adjustment program that Medicare currently uses to adjust the amount of money that private insurers get for covering Medicare patients to re reflect the risk of those individual patients. Medicare can use that in order to level use those tools in order to level the playing field between traditional Medicare and private Medicare Advantage plans in a way that allows for maximum uh, experimentation with quality improvement. So having said that, I'll turn things, uh, I'll turn to uh, Matthew Fiedler right now, ask for his initial thoughts, and then we'll get the same from David Milstein. Matthew? Yeah, so thanks again for having me. Um, I want to start uh, by, you know, there, I think there's a number of threads um, in what Michael just said that I'd like to pick, pick up on later, but like to provide a sort of overview of how I see the comparison between Medicare Advantage plans and traditional Medicare in terms of performance, because I think I it can set some useful context for, for some of our discussion about uh, potential uh, reform approaches. So I'm going to start with um, their performance on utilization, which is where I think there's the strongest case that MA plans are doing better than traditional Medicare right now. So my best guess based on the literature, um, particular work, particularly work by um, Bill Sicurto and colleagues, is that MA has about a 10% utilization advantage after adjusting for health status differences. That's a big number, um, but there are also some flies in the um, ointment. You know, some of that reduction seems to be of low value or avoidable care, which is uh, one of the things that Michael's paper points to as evidence of higher quality in MA. But a lot of that reduction also seems to be care that looks like pretty high value. So it seems like that MA plans are reducing utilization, but it's potentially a pretty blunt instrument. The other thing is that while we don't exactly know how MA plans achieve reductions in utilization, it's likely that things like narrower networks and the greater use of prior authorization and similar tools are playing an important role. Those are tools that can create hassle costs for patients as well as administrative costs for both providers and insurers themselves. So, you know, if I forced to guess, my bet um, is that the utilization reductions achieved by MA are a net positive, but the net social benefits of those utilization uh, reductions are probably a lot smaller than the, you know, the 10% um, gross reduction in utilization. I think it's also important to note that there are places where MA plans are, are pretty clearly destroying social value, and that's reflecting their tendency into investing in activities that may be privately, privately profitable, but not socially valuable. 
So for example, MA plans invest a lot of effort in capturing enrollee diagnoses so that they can get larger payments um, from the government via the Medicare Advantage Risk Adjustment System. Um, exactly how large those administrative costs are is, is not entirely clear to me, but whatever they are, they're, they're just pure social waste. Um, MA plans also seem to craft their benefit designs to particularly appeal to healthier enrollees. Uh, that's probably at least part of the reason that we often see somewhat narrower networks in MA. Um, that's, it seems to be a successful strategy. MA plans seem to be successful in attracting healthier enrollees than traditional Medicare, even after risk adjustment. Um, where benefit design decisions are being driven by selection rather than by uh, the costs and benefits of different types of care, that's likely to be a social loss. And then I think there are places where MA plans are actually doing pretty well, but that where they depend in an important way on the Medicare program's regulatory framework to achieve their success. So I think constraining provider prices is a case in point. You know, as an empirical matter, MA plans pay doctors and hospitals almost exactly what traditional Medicare pays for the same services. And that's a pretty far cry from what we see from private insurers outside of the Medicare program. In the broader commercial market, insurers pay around twice what Medicare pays for inpatient services on average. Probably they pay somewhat more than that for outpatient facility services, and maybe on the order of 140% of what Medicare pays uh, for physician services. I think there's some room for debate about what features of the Medicare policy landscape allow Medicare Advantage plans to negotiate prices that are so close to traditional Medicare in the, um, even when the same insurers are often negotiating much higher um, prices in their other service lines. You know, it could be competition from traditional Medicare. It could be the fact that out-of-network prices in Medicare Advantage are capped by regulation at traditional Medicare rates. It could be some combination of the two. But what I don't think there's much doubt about is that MA plan's success in negotiating prices that are competitive with traditional Medicare is fundamentally depends um, on the Medicare program's regulatory structure. So I think my bottom line is that as we talk about the role that private plans should play in the Medicare program, we need to be clear-eyed about the fact that MA plans have some strengths, but also some real weaknesses, and that keeping those weaknesses from doing damage is likely to require situating MA plans within a pretty robust regulatory framework. Okay, thank you, Matthew. David. So what I want to talk about a little bit is fee-for-service and how that plays into this environment. So first, when you think about quality, uh, you just have to recognize that quality is variable. There are many different provider organizations that address the same patient in different ways. You go and ask any physician what they were doing, and they'd say, we're following best practices and doing what's best for their patient. And yet you'd ask three different patients and, or physicians and get three different answers on the best way to treat them. And so the outcomes are going to be different. And we've seen that consistently. This is the Dartmouth Atlas type work, but we've seen this through hundreds of studies through the years is that quality varies across the country and how outcomes um, are rendered. That is strongly driven by the provider. And that's the provider who is treating the patient. And when you talk to these providers, they say that it doesn't matter who's paying them. They say that it could be Medicare, it could be Medicare Advantage, it could be commercial, but they're going to all treat their patients the same. Now, when you look at this empirically, there might be some uh, variation on the margins, margins, but by and large, they really are um, tend to be relatively consistent across their patients. If somebody needs a knee transplant or a knee replacement, whether they're being paid for by traditional Medicare or Medicare Advantage or Medicaid or anyone else, the surgery will be done in approximately the same way. And so I think that's the first thing we have to think about is that the payer is, has, has an influence on quality, but they don't have a driving influence on quality that's going to be the incentives for the individual provider. 
The challenge that I view is that most of American healthcare is still driven by a fee-for-service model. Now, traditional Medicare is set into statute that it's going to be a fee-for-service model, but most of Medicare Advantage plans, most of managed Medicaid plans, and most commercial plans continue to use fee-for-service or some variation of fee-for-service. This incentivizes people to optimize the volume of services that they're doing. I think of this as a capacity-focused mindset. The incentive is to build capacity around well-reimbursed services, fill that capacity, and crank through them as quickly as you can see. And that's why we see across the country uh, growth in cardiac specialty hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers and oncology treatment centers, because those are well-reimbursed. They're not tied to the outcomes that are being generated. And it's hard to do that, particularly because of the very basic structure of fee-for-service it's not concerned with the health of the population and it's not concerned with the outputs. It's all about what the inputs are going into the system. And Medicare adopted that because that's what Blue Cross and Blue Shield were doing at the time and they kind of formalized that back in 1965. But it hasn't gone away. There are a handful of what I would consider true prepaid capitated health systems out there um, that are, are, are managing care differently, but they are by far the exception. And so when we think about what the challenges are that Medicare brings to the table in terms of incentivizing that, I think we need to recognize that most other health plans, including most MA plans, are in that same boat, where they're not focusing on something other than traditional, than, than some variation of fee-for-service. Now, that doesn't mean we can't improve quality, and we certainly should improve quality. But when we look at overall what's, what's driving healthcare with the variability of quality that exists, I actually would argue that the cost is the more important side of it. And so when we're looking at things from a policy perspective, yes, we want to incentivize quality and we need to be able to do that. But uh, by and large, I think that the cost side is, is even more important than the quality side that we need to be trying to ratchet down. We can get more into that as we discuss things. So Michael, I'll let you uh, direct our conversation. Okay, so uh, a lot of topics came up. Let me ask you about this because I, I think it speaks directly to what you, you, you were talking about there, David. One of the uh, theses in our paper is that, is that there is no perfect payment system. We call it the siren song of the perfect payment system. Any way of paying, because healthcare is so complex, it's so hard to know whether what the doctor did led to a good outcome, did lead to a bad outcome. There's so much uncertainty involved that uh, and, and measuring quality and measuring outcomes is, is in most cases so costly that it's very hard to reward outcomes at the, uh, at the physician or patient level. We're, we, you know, healthcare providers usually pay uh, uh, based on fee-for-service or based on a capitated payment system or some hybrid, and any one of these, any of these payment systems is going to reward some forms of quality and actively punish other forms of quality. So, uh, so and that's one of the main theses of, of the paper. We take that uh, uh, hypothesis and then apply it to Medicare and say, well, one of the reasons we have so much overutilization in Medicare is because Medicare pays on a fee-for-service basis and fee-for-service rewards more utilization. And one of the reasons there are so many medical errors in the United States is because not just the Medicare program, but also the, the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance all encourage fee-for-service payment, which creates disincentives for providers to invest in 
uh, in processes that reduce medical errors. What do you make of that hypothesis that, that every payment system is going to uh, improve, is going to reward some forms of quality and punish other forms of quality, and that therefore what you need is competition between them, between all payment systems, in order to promote all dimensions of quality? I certainly agree that every payment model has its limitations and there's not a perfect one that's going to address everything that we're, we're interested in. I think that what uh, is a really important part of this is that we need to better understand what quality is and understand what those outcomes are of interest and how we're uh, both measuring them and how we're trying to improve them. Costs are straightforward. Everybody can understand costs and how much we're paying for something, but it's really tricky when you're looking at the quality side of it. I'll just give a few examples of this. When you're looking at quality metrics, there could be structure, process, and outcomes type metrics. Structures are things like nursing ratios and process measures are like percent of your, are your patients that received a prophylactic antibiotic prior to a surgery. I mean, those are things that may ultimately lead to what people really care about and they may not, and that's the outcomes. The outcomes though are broad. One outcome could be patient satisfaction. It can say if people are satisfied with their care, if they had a great doctor, that's all that matters. They might be a lousy doctor, but they had great bedside manners and that's sufficient. Other outcomes could be things like clinical input, outputs, so or clinical endpoints. Did you improve the ejection fraction for your um, heart failure patients? It could be things um, like moving um, more uh, functional type things. So are somebody able to now walk up a flight of stairs without being short of breath when they formerly weren't? Or it could go down to costs and say that's an outcome as well. We're looking at the costs. The challenge is, is that depending on the audience, what's important varies significantly. And some people really care about, I want to have a doctor that appears to care about me, even if they are incompetent when it comes to surgery. Other people say, I don't care if the, the doctor doesn't know my name, as long as they are really good at executing this and they're going to improve my clinical endpoints in a way that's, that's appropriate. I think one of the challenges we have with all of this is that until we can consistently and effectively measure what quality is and define it, then we are kind of stabbing in the dark. We don't know what we're doing and how we're improving this or not improving this with any of the different business or any of these different payment models. And I know from the clients that I work with across the industry, they do not have a good sense of what quality is um, or a consistent understanding. It's not consistently measured and it's not consistently acted. So you have to have some way of, of improving that. And I think that's gonna be a start to whatever we do, whether it's with MA or Medicare or commercial, whatever it is, we have to consistently measure in a way that's meaningful to the users. Um, I want to return to that. But Matthew, can I jump on, on, in this, on this for a moment, actually? Um, just, you know, I, I, I think what uh, David said is really important, that I think we are not very good at measuring quality right now. And a lot of that is because um, quality is highly multidimensional. Um, and so, you know, the burden, the measurement burden to measure all the dimensions of quality you might care about is going to be really, really high. And that is a reason that in terms of, you know, strategies for improving quality, um, I have, am in a place where I'm increasingly looking at tools outside the payment system as likely to be our most effective levers there. So um, I think one of one important lever potentially is, um, is provider market competition, actually, um, that when there's more uh, competition among different healthcare providers in a market, patients have more ability to vote with their feet, and that puts um, upward, potentially upward pressure on quality. Um, I think there are probably some limitations to that strategy as well. It can do a good job with the dimensions of quality 
um, that um, that patients can observe readily. Um, you know, some, the you know patient satisfaction type dimensions that David was alluding to, um, and perhaps not not be not so great on certain other dimensions of quality. But I do think it is a potentially more effective lever than trying to use the payment system. And then I think another place to think about is. You know, I think Michael, you said something, or maybe David, it was David earlier on that, you know, healthcare providers generally want to do right by their patients. And I think there are opportunities to, um, to try to harness that sort of professional instinct um, in ways that may not be monetary, um, but pre use various types of social pressures um, to, to improve quality as well. And I think quality measurement is a really important point here. And I want to ask, doesn't that uh, uh, by, itse by itself make the point that Medicare at least doesn't care about quality? Because it wasn't until 2003, more than 30 years, almost 40 years uh, uh, into Medicare's operation, that that Medicare required hospitals to report on quality metrics. So Medicare spent 40 years not even trying to measure quality. And, and then once it did measure quality, I mean, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission is still complaining that the quality metrics that Medicare is using are not useful, or at least not optimally useful. They've uh, advocated getting rid of a lot of them and getting rid of a lot of Medicare's quality improvement programs because they don't work. Doesn't, that, doesn't the fact that we don't have useful uh, actionable quality metrics itself serve as an indictment of uh, this program that took 40 years before it even bothered to try to measure quality. I'll answer it in two ways. One, I think it's an indictment of the program, but I think it's an indictment of healthcare. So when they first passed Medicare, the assumption was is that you're going to pay fee for service and the patients are going to do what's, or the physicians will do what's right. There was this assumption that high quality care was, it was just assumed in the transaction. And that has never been the case and it, it wasn't the case. And so there was significant um, pushback to be measured because everybody would say, well, my patients were sicker. You're never going to capture that. And you're going to just blame the doctor all the time. And this is the reality is that half of doctors are in the bottom half. Not everyone is the A student. Not everybody does a perfect job. Not everybody is an incredible surgeon. That's one of the challenges that we have with healthcare that we grapple with. Most people would like to assume that wherever you go, you're going to have very high quality care, but we've seen such variability that it, it doesn't matter. So an example of this is bariatric surgery. If you look at bariatric surgery, historically about 2% of people died on that, from this. And you'd say, well, that's a one in 50 chance. And that's something that's really meaningful. But when you're at the point where you need uh, bariatric surgery, then you're just going to uh, address or go with that risk. The reality is, though, is that depending on the facility, that could be as low as half a percent to as high as 10%. That's a huge difference. And if you're a patient trying to make that decision, you can't just assume that going to that small, low-volume hospital is going to have the same quality outcomes as going to the high-volume center of excellence. Uh, because a 1 in 10 chance of death versus a 1 in 200 chance of death is a pretty significant outcome measure. And so I think we need an expectation of that. We need to say that, look, there are very, there is significant variability and we need to try to improve that. One thing that I, I think we should mention is that MACRA, this was the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act of 2015 for the first time included a requirement that physicians, these are through Part B payments, start to be measured on quality. 
So it was first on the hospital side to the Part A side of, of Medicare, but now it's also starting to be on the Part B. It's limited, it's incomplete, there's a lot of challenges with it, but for the first time, that was 50 years after Medicare was passed, they said we should start measuring this. Most commercial plans still are not do that um, and require additional quality measurement. And I think that is one thing that Medicare has as an advantage. It is so large as a payer that when it says we're going to require you to do extra things, people will actually do those. If you with a, a small commercial plan, provider will say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to report additional quality. You can do what you want with your HEDIS metrics or using claims data to, to calculate quality, but you're not going to get any clinical data to actually more effectively evaluate it. And so we have to recognize that with whatever is happening, Medicare does have the ability to move the market in ways that, that the commercial market can't. By the same token, though, uh, Medicare can require providers to do something, but that doesn't mean that that something is going to be useful. And one of the reasons why so much of what Medicare does when it comes to quality improvement is not useful is precisely because of what you mentioned, David, the providers don't like it. They don't want to report on those quality metrics, either because they think uh, it's not going to capture how sick my patients are and it's going to penalize me, or we just don't want the hassle, whatever the case they will have a voice in shaping those quality metrics and those quality metrics then are not going to be optimally uh, beneficial to enrollees because precisely because the providers will, uh, will have a greater influence in shaping them than, uh, than, than Medicare beneficiaries will. This is not a problem you have when you look at the private market. Private insurers can develop their own quality metrics. And if the providers don't want to use them, well, they don't have to participate in that health plan, but they don't have the power to go to the, uh, the insurance companies and tell them, no, you cannot use those quality metrics. Uh, we're going to lobby our member of Congress to make sure you cannot use them as, as they do in the Medicare program. I think that accounts for a, a large share of the, the, the things that the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission complains about in terms of the quality metrics not being useful and the quality improvement programs not being, uh, not, not be, uh, delivering the quality improvements that people had hoped they would. Medicare think, is Michael, a, go ahead, David. Uh, yeah, Medicare is, is a policy actor is really challenging because um, whenever there is proposed action the payers, the providers, the patients, all of them have a stake at the table. And the providers tend to have what I would say uh, significant influence on what happens. And so uh, it is really hard. So while Medicare has the power to force things, they also can end up with really poor compromises. My favorite example of this is when they first had hospital compare came out, they had a whole bunch of potential measures. And um, all of the specialty associations argued about these and said, we can't agree on any of these measures because we think that we're going to be adversely impacted by them. And so at the end of the day, they had, I think, about six or eight measures that were first there. And one of those was percent of patients that had hair removed with clippers rather than a razor prior to surgery. And you think about it, it's like, if you only have eight metrics to understand the quality of a hospital, that's probably not in my top thousand. But that was one of the ones that was there. Um, and that's because that's all that they could agree about. On the commercial side, it's, it's hard too, though, is because then you have negotiations. And when you have a large health plan and you have a large provider group that are negotiating, um, you end up to very unstandardized 
treatments and understand uh, under unstandardized quality approaches. And this is where you'll say, look, every different provider that's negotiated with this health plan has a different metric of what it means to be um, an uncontrolled diabetic with different A1C levels that they're, they're shooting for because they negotiate the quality metrics along with everything else. And so while it's hard to get consistency with Medicare, it's equal, or it's hard to get, you can be very consistent, but it's hard to get them passed on the Medicare side. On the commercial side and the Medicare Advantage side, it's really, really hard to be con, uh, consistent across the plans. And so it's just, a, they both have weaknesses. And, you know, I just add on that, I think, you know, empirically what we see is that, in fact, you know, commercial plans are generally lagging behind Medicare and using some of these tools. Now, with respect to, I think, some of the sort of pay for performance type tools, you know, the MIPS and hospital value-based purchasing, um, that may all be to the good. I think the case that those have um, improved quality is relatively weak um, and the administrative costs they've generated is relatively small. But in terms of other types of sort of non-fee-for-service arrangements, um, you know, shared savings and capitation type arrangements, um, you know, it's probably, I think it's, the evidence would suggest it's a good thing that uh, Medicare is ahead of commercial plans um, in those regards. And so I think, you know, Michael, the story you're telling, you might think the commercial plans would be better than this, but, th but they don't seem to be. And I, I think one of the reasons for that, one, you know, David alluded to one, which is resistance from the providers, but I think another challenge for a commercial plan is, is the fact that providers tend to treat all of their patients the same way. So if, you know, one commercial insurer innovates in provider payment and that either leads a um, you know, physician to adopt a more efficient or a higher quality practice style, a lot of those benefits are going to accrue to people covered by Medicare, but also people covered by the insurers, um, the insurers' private competitors. Um, and so the incentives for private insurers to make some of the investments in developing these new payment systems may be quite a lot smaller than they look like. Points that we make in the paper is that uh, when it comes to in quality innovations as well as payment innovations. The private sector uh, is far ahead of the Medicare program. If you want to talk about capitation uh, or, and or integration, integrated delivery, the private sector delivered those more, you know, 100 years before Medicare came onto the scene. The problem is uh, not that they turned out to be not economically viable, those models. Uh, the problem is other government interventions from licensing of clinicians to the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance have either uh, tried to strangle those and, and successfully strangled a lot of those uh, those providers so that they could not remain economically viable as a result of uh, government regulation, or just tilted the playing field in, the fa in, in favor of uh, fragmented delivery and fee-for-service payment that they're it's very rare, as David says, to find a, a fully integrated, capitated uh, uh, healthcare delivery system in the United States today. But I do think that the history of those systems shows that it, it is, in fact, the private sector that has been more innovative than Medicare, certainly more innovative than Medicare has, because every, every time Medicare comes up with some new idea of how we're going to pay for this or share the risk with uh, those providers, uh, those those ideas originated in the private sector rather than in the Medicare program. Um, and this can, I think, serve as a segue into uh, a, a discussion of what we 
propose in that paper as a way to encourage experimentation with different payment systems, different delivery systems, and different uh, innovative quality improvement programs, which is applying public option principles to the Medicare program. Uh, Medicare right now, uh, as I mentioned before, offers enrollees a choice. You can either enroll in traditional Medicare, where the government pays doctors and hospitals directly, generally on a fee-for-service basis, or you can enroll in a private Medicare Advantage plan, as 40% of uh, enrollees do, where the government writes a check to insurance companies, and then the insurance companies write checks to doctors and hospitals based on their own payment systems and quality improvement programs and so forth. The rhetoric of, of a public option, uh, of, of that public option advocates use to sell the program is if you have competition between a government plan on the one hand and private insurers on the other, and that competition is on a level playing field, then you will get more of what consumers want because consumers will be the ones choosing between uh, the government or the private insurers based on the cost of those plans and whether they're delivering what consumers want. And we think that that can happen in the Medicare program if you have a more level playing field. So the first question I want to ask about, about that proposed solution is uh, rather about the uh, not about the solution itself, but about the uh, the state of play in the Medicare program right now. How level a playing field is there between traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage plans and between fee-for-service and other payment systems and between fragmented delivery of care and integrated delivery of care? It's a, it's a tricky question. I'll take a stab at that. So. Uh... I'll first integrated versus the non-integrated side of care. I think one of the challenges that we have with fee-for-service is that from the very genesis of that, it's encouraged people to focus on the procedures, which um, at that time were what people needed. You had an acute condition, you were treated, you either got better or you died. Uh, now we have where many people uh, and a majority of our, our costs are related to chronic conditions where people are not are sick for a long period of time and often are never going to improve. What we've done is we've increased the life expectancy of people that live while they're sick. And that's great, but uh, the system is not built for that. And so one of the challenges is that when you optimize around a fee-for-service system, one where you're pumping volume through, is that you are not optimizing for maintaining people, keeping them healthy, keeping them out of the hospital, et cetera. And the very business model of most of the provider groups in the country are optimized around that fee-for-service. And so even if there were a fully capitated offering for them, most of them would not be in a position to do that. They don't have the right um, training or recruitment of their physicians. They don't have facilities. They don't have the right technology. They don't have the right supply chain. Um, they don't have the way to um, assess a population's health and identify appropriate interventions for them. And so with that, uh, I think that it's, it's um, important to recognize we'd like to get to that point, but recognize that we're not there today. And it's very difficult to only do it from the payment side. You also have to transform the delivery system of care. And you have to start with that, I believe, from looking at the business model and the very structure of how they set up their companies is um, really not well positioned to move away from anything but fee-for-service. And that, that makes it really hard um, for people, for providers to move to what you would consider an integrated health plan. And we see this with a lot of the provider-sponsored plans today. So there's a lot of healthcare systems that are starting to offer Medicare Advantage, and then they pay themselves under true fee-for-service. 
and you're thinking, well, what's the efficiency of that? And it just turns out that it's a way to get more revenue and to, to manage things a little bit differently, but um, they're not changing their business model. And so that integration side, I think, is really hard. And I think that leads to that challenge, which is if all else were equal, then payment models that incentivize better quality care through integration or through integrated care would be better, but things are not equal. Um, things are already heavily tilted towards almost all providers sticking with fee-for-service, whether it's through Medicare Advantage or traditional Medicare or through the commercial side. Heavily tilted toward Medicare Advantage and fragmented care. Um, what about- Fee-for-service oh, models, yeah. Fee-for-service, what about MA versus traditional Medicare? Uh, same thing, because even with MA, they tend to pay under the fee-for-service. And so that's that same barrier, which is, um, if we could move towards integrated MA plans, that would be better, but so far we're just not seeing that. But from the from the position of uh, the enrollee who's having to choose between the government plan or a private MA plan, is policy tilting the playing field one direction or the other? I mean, uh, in general, I would say that the, the 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 playing field is somewhat tilted towards the MA plans. Just um, at the moment, right? MA plans are being paid more. Um, than traditional Medicare is for um, covering a beneficiary. And I suspect the common estimates on that may even be a little bit too low because I think they may be um, under um, understating the degree to which MA plans are attracting healthier enrollees um, than traditional Medicare is. Um, and those, those additional payments are then translating into additional benefits that MA plans are able to offer um, that traditional Medicare is not. Now, there are some regulatory requirements that apply to MA that um, traditional Medicare doesn't meet. Um, I think one good example is um, Medicare Advantage plans are you know, required by regulation to, to cap um, out-of-pocket spending over the course of a year. Uh, that's frankly something I think that should be included in traditional Medicare, but is not. Um, um, I'm not actually sure the plans are harmed by that requirement. Um, I think it may, in, in many respects, actually make, um, you know, solve a collection act, collective action problem that they would have. They, none of them would want to have an out-of-pocket cap because they would be worried about getting all the sick enrollees. But if they all have to have it, it makes the overall MA product um, more appealing. So I agree that in general, Medicare Advantage or, or, or Congress tilts the playing field in favor of Medicare Advantage because uh, enrollees, almost all enrollees, get a larger subsidy if they enroll in Medicare Advantage than through the traditional Medicare program. There does appear to be one group of enrollees that does better under traditional Medicare, though that's very high cost enrollees. There is evidence to suggest that they can increase their subsidy dramatically. We talk about it in the paper, I think $25,000 in some cases, by switching from a Medicare Advantage plan into traditional, back into traditional Medicare, once they have a very high cost illness, that's because I think of the utilization controls that you discussed earlier and traditional Medicare doesn't use those. And I think one cause we identify in the paper is that Medicare imposes on Medicare Advantage plans what we call uh, uh, community rating price controls. And even though they use risk adjustment to try to mitigate the perverse incentives that those price controls create, there are still uh, incentives for that Medicare creates for Medicare Advantage plans to, uh, to restrict access to care for the sick in a way that is not efficient, in a way that, uh, that, that would reduce the quality of their coverage and possibly even threaten their health. 
and we propose a way to deal with that. So uh, we, we sort of agree that the playing field is not level between traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage. And we argue in the paper that the way to level that playing field, if you really want it to be level, uh, the only way to do that is not to have two different systems for determining what someone's subsidy is going to be, because whenever you have two different systems, it's going to spit out two different numbers. And for some people, it's going to be higher over here. For others, it's going to be higher over there. But the, the, the playing field is not going to be level. Instead, have one system that, uh, that comes up with one number per enrollee and gives the enrollee that subsidy uh, and it, in the form of cash that they could then apply to the premiums for Medicare, uh, traditional Medicare or Medicare Advantage and use the risk adjustment, the Medicare Advantage risk adjustment program or something like it to adjust the cash payment that they receive so that sicker enrollees get a larger than average uh, check from the Medicare program and then let the tr or the Medicare Advantage participating insurers charge premiums that correspond to the health profile of individual enrollees. And because the individual enrollee gets a, a sicker enrollee gets a larger check, they don't have to fear those larger premiums because you could even benchmark the amount that they receive against the premiums. Is that necessary to level the playing field between traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage and to improve the quality of care? And, um, uh, I'll end that question there. So I would say no. And in, in fact, I would say that the outcomes under that type of system would, would probably be worse than the community rated system we have. So it's certainly true that with community rating and imperfect risk adjustment, ensure, you know, enrollment can be driven towards overly skimpy plans, both because, you know, enrollees flee the higher premiums at plans that attract sicker enrollees and because insurers just refuse to offer some types of plans in hopes of avoiding those sicker enrollees. I think policymakers do have tools to grapple with that. That's, you know, that's, a, I think, a core function of many of the benefit regulations that um, MA plans are subject to. And I think the program can probably also do a better job on risk adjustment to sort of attenuate some of these incentives. But I agree, you know, the selection incentives here are a real concern. But I don't think um, insurers' interest in risk selection goes away in the world you're envisioning where in the subsidy to enrollees is health status rated. Um, it just manifests itself in different ways. So for example, for exactly the same reasons that risk adjustment is imperfect, um, you know, health status adjusted subsidies aren't going to exactly match each enrollee's expected costs. Um, in some cases, insurers are going to be able to figure out within, you know, people with any particular condition who has a more serious version of that condition versus a less serious version of the condition. They're going to charge the, you know, more seriously ill people more and the less seriously ill people less. And in many cases, the people with the more severe cases are going to be facing extreme premium burdens that aren't, that are going to lock them out of the market. In other cases, insurers aren't going to be able to tell the difference between the people with more and serious, less serious versions of the condition, but they will recognize that the more severe cases are going to be more likely to choose their plan if they offer good coverage for that condition or good coverage in general, and they're going to respond by just denying coverage to those types of people entirely. Um, so, and I, I don't think that's hypothetical. That's, you know, the behavior we saw on the individual market um, before the introduction of the ACA. And I expect that would be much more a much more severe issue in an older and sicker population. The other thing I just mentioned is that health status underwriting adds quite a bit of complexity and friction to the enrollment process. Um, that directly adds administrative costs, but 
um, I think probably more importantly, my suspicion is quite a bit, um, quite a number of people would end up sort of falling through the cracks um, of that process and just end up not enrolling under this type of system. Well, but there would still be traditional Medicare. So you can't say that, that people would fall through the cracks. Traditional Medicare would still be an option for them if they wanted to apply their subsidy there. And most of the things that you're discussing about insurer screening and the administrative costs of underwriting, these are costs that they that insurers are incurring um, uh, or they're, they're things that insurers are doing and the incentives for them to do that, particularly screening, are greater uh, under the current system with community rating price controls in place. They are less, or if you get rid of those price controls because insurers can then adjust premiums to reflect risk. And uh, when they can't, it doesn't mean that they're not looking at the risk of individual enrollees and trying to uh, and trying to manage those risks. It just means that they are doing it, uh, uh, they're still doing it, but the ways that they're responding to it are more socially harmful so that nobody can get high quality coverage because of the sort of uh, selection effects that you're talking about under uh, under community rating, where the sickest enrollees go to the plans with the high with the best coverage for their illness. That's not necessarily going to happen in a system where they can charge premiums that correspond to risk because some of those enrollees will not want to pay the higher premiums for the gold-plated coverage. They will make different trade-offs. They will say, you know what, I will go, uh, I will be happier with the mediocre plan because I want to use some of that extra money for something else to pass on to my heirs or what have you. Uh, I think that all of the problems that you're describing are uh, present in the current system or even worse and uh, under a, a public option Medicare system uh, you would even even though it would not be perfect, uh, you would still have that backstop of the traditional Medicare program uh, that that uh, presumably would fill in the cr cracks that you uh, fear uh, would, would would still exist. Um, uh, David, did you want to? Uh, I put the same question to you that I put to Matthew before. Uh, would th would that sort of a system? With risk-adjusted cash payments to Medicare enrollees that they can in, they, then use to choose from a menu of uh, of risk-rated plans, is that necessary to level the playing field between uh, traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage plans? I think the challenge with this goes back to the the idea of imperfect information, and um, let's pretend that we could get it generally accurate with risk adjustment, which is a, a large hypothesis. But if we were able to do that, you'd still have to have the beneficiaries in a position that they could make legitimate trade-offs across the plans. And I'm just not convinced that that's the level that um, beneficiaries are well-positioned to make these trade-offs. Um, I was trying to figure out network size and copay deductible type premiums and maximum amount of pockets and sort of things. It's really difficult to do that, uh, particularly far in advance. Where I think competition could be better targeted is creating models where you have the providers themselves uh, that are providing the care. And this is where people are in a better position to choose among providers and say, I want to get all of my care from health system A versus health system B than they are trying to choose between two nebulous healthcare plans, which they don't really understand. And so if I were going to try to move towards a consumer incented decision-making, Maybe they do have risk adjusted premiums that are going with them, but I would want them to be choosing at provider group levels that are meaningful and responsible for the care that they're going to be provided, not at the plan level. 
And I think that's the challenge that I've seen with all of these models is that when people are making the decisions on the plans, it's typically based on price. And that may or may not ultimately matter what's most to them when they get sick or if they get sick. And that's why when you see the uptake of Medicare Advantage right now, it's disproportionately being driven by dual eligibles. So the poorest of the poor, um, and they're the ones that, that do it because you say, look, it's going to be less out of pocket to you. And so the entire decision is based on the, the upfront cost as opposed to um, what they may ultimately value. And so my, my thought is that I like the ideas of that. I think it, it could make a big difference if you have some risk adjusted premium in there, but the decision is better made at a provider group level as opposed to the plan level. Um, but isn't that one of the advantages of a uh, of a Medicare program that would subsidize enrollees with cash like the Social Security program does and then trust them to spend it? Alan Entoven and other advocates of the Kaiser Permanente type integrated prepaid group practice model uh, fault a lack of cost consciousness for Kaiser's inability to uh, to gain a toehold in North Carolina when it tried to enter that market years ago. There was only a small fraction of, uh, of, the, uh, of consumers in North Carolina who had a choice of health plans and a, uh, a cost-conscious choice of plans. So, the, so prices where those sort of systems have an advantage, but because none of the consumers they were trying to attract, not enough of them cared about the cost of their health insurance, they weren't able to uh, uh, attract enough of them to become economically viable. Doesn't that then, David, prevent uh, or, or the, uh, the lack, doesn't a lack of cost consciousness prevent, uh, create an obstacle to those sorts of health plans and therefore consumers making a selection at the level of the provider group? Because in those sorts of health plans, the insurer, the plan and the group are tied together and wouldn't making Medicare and enrollees cost conscious by subsidizing them with cash or something very close to it, create the opportunity for those sorts of plans to emerge, to enter new markets and to give consumers the sort of uh, provider level choice that you advocate. So you actually raised a really great case study that I that I love. So Kaiser's attempted expansion into North Carolina. One of my favorite articles, it was from 2003 from the Mill Bay Quarterly called The Rise and Fall of a Kaiser Permanente Expansion Region. Great article for any nerds out there, they should definitely go and read this one. But um, it, it talks about some of the challenges that are there. There were regulatory challenges. There were certainly patient challenges. There were provider challenges. But um, ultimately, I said one of the biggest limitations was that they were trying to operate under two business models. The business model of say, an integrated prepaid group practice with employed physicians taking full risk at the same time where they were trying to take fee-for-service payments and trying to operate under a more traditional health plan model. And it was impossible to operate them at the same time. And I think that with a lot of these things, we have to grapple with that. Most providers and most health plans were structured to do traditional payment models, fee-for-service. If we want to move to these prepaid models, um, we're going to have to make some major changes. I'm a big believer. If we could move to all prepaid group practices, I think we would be better off. Um, if Medicare Advantage could do that, I think that would be, uh, I would probably vote for that. But um, so far, Medicare Advantage hasn't been doing a very good job of getting us there any faster than, than Medicare uh, or commercial. So I think there's a lot of room that we need to, to work on and to improve.
I'd also just add that I don't think the um, I don't think cost consciousness necessitates the more radical revisions to the Medicare um, subsidy structure that you're talking about. So, right when MA plans right now um, underbid the fee for service benchmark, um, enrollees um, capture you know 50 to 70 percent of that, depending on exactly you know what plan we're talking about. I think there's a reasonable argument that that should be 100 percent, but it doesn't require abandoning the community rating structure. Um, of MA in order to achieve that. Uh, but isn't it the case though that very little of uh, the, um, well, there is some cost consciousness in, in the current structure of the Medicare Advantage program. It is far less than 100% cost consciousness at the margin, uh, in part because the only uh, something like 75% of the, uh, the, the savings that a, an enrollee would see for choosing a lower cost plan, come back to that enrollee, not in the form of premium reductions, but in the form of higher benefits, additional benefits. So, think- so, 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 so the cost consciousness, e- even where it exists in the MA program is very muted. So I think there's an interesting question why MA insurers do decide to primarily return um, the rebate dollars, as they're called, in the form of additional benefits rather than um, by buying down the premium. It's a choice that the MA plans are making. They have, you know, they do tend to buy down the Part D premium, um, but they do very little in the way of buying down the Part B premium. Why insurers have concluded that the most effective way to appeal to these enrollees is to offer additional benefits rather than buying down the premium, I think is an interesting question. But it's not the case that um, insurers don't have the option to do that today. They just generally choose not to. David? Um, I, I don't think I'll add anything else for that one. Okay, well then I think we'll probably make that the last word because this, our hour is up. I wanna thank Matthew Fiedler and David Muelstein for joining us f- for today's discussion. Uh, we had a lot of questions come in. I apologize, we could not get to any of them. We had such a robust discussion here, uh, but the video recording of this event will be available on the Cato Institute's website. Again, uh, the paper we've been discussing is would Medicare for all mean quality for all? How a public option, how public option principles could reverse Medicare's negative impact on quality? It's available on the Social Sciences Research Network website now, and will be available in coming weeks in final form uh, in the Quinnipiac Health Law Journal. Uh, if you want, want to read more about Cato's health policy work, you can follow us on Twitter at. Uh, Cato Health. If you'd like to learn more about uh, Matthew Fiedler's work, you can find it at the uh, Brookings Institute website, which is brookings.org. And David Muelstein's uh, uh, work, you can find it in Health Affairs and other uh, scholarly publications. Does uh, HMA run, does does it have a page that aggregates all of your scholarship? There's some, and they're they're around, but Health Affairs is where most of them end up. Okay. Well, then again, uh, to my guests, I thank you very much. And to all of the folks watching online, uh, we, we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.